Hello, my name is Sam. And my name is Chun. It is half past two UK time on Saturday, the 7th of November 2020. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hey Sam, how's your week been? How often have you refreshed Twitter this week? I mean, pretty relentlessly. I've pretty much been watching John King and on CNN for the last 72 hours straight. Well, I'm I'm sure you're not the only one. I've gone there and Steve Kornacki on M- MSNBC, really. And I mean, both his... of them have become UK icons. I saw at one point, hashtag chartthrob was twe- trending on Twitter. <laughs> Oh gosh, um, and and I, I just have to admire the stamina of these people being able to talk about the same thing over and over again. But it was so fascinating to watch. It has been it? a masterclass in riffing, definitely. And as I'm sure everyone has been paying attention this week, today we'll begin our deep dive into the results of the ongoing U.S. elections and doing a final review of what has happened in New Zealand, because the the special votes, which are mainly overseas votes and votes cast by university students, have just come in and declared this week. But before we talk about the US elections, there are other things that have been happening around the world. So Sam, what have you been, what has caught your eye this week in terms of politics, elections, events around the world? So in the UK this week, we had a a bit of news coming from Nigel Farage, who actually spent the last few weeks in the US helping his friend Donald Trump. But we had an announcement this week from Richard Tice, who used to be chairman of the Brexit party, that they were going to be rebranding to become Reform UK, which will be trying to champion um, electoral reform and institutional reform. But particularly at the moment, they're going to be an anti-lockdown party, which I thought was particularly interesting. I'm not sure how much this will become a salient party or not. But interestingly, in the most recent YouGov poll of voting intentions, the Brexit party, because their name hasn't been changed yet, was recorded as having 6%, which is the highest they've been since the 2019 general election. Um, So I thought that was interesting. And it just made me think, and I wonder, Chern, what your opinion on this is. Do you think there's a place for such a party in the UK, but maybe more broadly internationally, to position themselves as anti-COVID measures? I I think in terms of its overall set of positions, I think clearly, although Richard Tice announced it, the main driving force behind Reform UK and previously the Brexit party was Nigel Farage, and that is unlikely to change in this new form. I think he has looked at Donald Trump and seen this populist right-winger and he thinks he can replicate that formula, particularly amongst the personality-driven politics as well. And I think in terms of COVID, it's really interesting that he's decided to go anti-lockdown because in a way, that's kind of a space that Trump did in terms of trade deals as well because at that time, the Republican Party and the Democrat Party were very pro-free trade agreements and NAFTA. TPP and Trump really wasn't. And if you look at the UK, both Labour and the Conservatives are both um, pro, well, not pro lockdown, but they are in favour of lockdown measures. Mm-hmm. And I think he's made the calculation that if he is anti lockdown, that it will appeal to the same kind of working class white voters that were in Labour's infamous red war, the Conservatives, to in 2019. 
and that UKIP did uh, UKIP previously the Brexit party in 2019 when the Conservatives since then did quite well in and that's how best to continue so COVID is a natural extension really so that is my thoughts my question to you Sam the one thing I'm curious about is that it's decided to focus on electoral reform any reason why do you think I mean part of it probably comes from the fact that Nigel Farage's party in the past, whether it be UKIP or the Brexit party, have been plagued with being unfairly treated by the electoral system. Because whatever you think of UKIP, in the 2015 general election, they got 13% of the vote and one seat. So I guess it comes from the fact that he has realised that in the past, a party like his has been unable to break through in first past the post. I find it interesting that that's what they chose as their marketing platform in their lo- official launch this week, because but it's the anti-establishment theme though that Trump popularized. Yeah, that's very true. It's, and, an anti- it's-, it's a broader anti-institutional theme, but it's, especially in recent years, particularly we saw this in 2019 because the Labour Party actually talked about this a little bit, um, some constitutional issues. That constitutional issues are just not very high salient in the UK, especially not at the moment with COVID, with a plummeting economy and with Brexit ongoing in the UK when that returns. I'm just not sure that these are entirely high salient issues. So I guess we'll see how this plays out. But that's what's caught my eye this week from a from an international perspective. Well, on my end, um, tomorrow, so Sunday, is the Myanmar election. And... Aung San Suu Kyi, who is running for her second term as uh, now technically is to elect the president, but the constitution forbids her from becoming president. So she's created this post of state councillor, which is very akin to prime minister. So in the lower house, the House of Representatives, there are 330 seats out of 440 up for election. In, in the, the equivalent of the upper house, there are 168 out of 224 up for election there. And a quarter of the seats in both the Senate and the upper and lower houses are reserved for the military. So the fact that it showed you the extent of her popularity five years ago, that she was able to gain a majority across the entire legislature, despite only having to compete in 75% of the seats, showed you the endearing popularity in which her party and the National League for Democracy was held in five years ago as well is that she was very much running as the opposition leader um, against the union, um, against the USDP, which was then aligned to the military junta. And if you remember, that they are, the junta had been in power since the 90s and actually refused to, let, to give power to Aung San Suu Kyi and put her under house arrest until the 2015 election when she came to power. But this election, of course, is now she's running on a record and obviously that's very different. And I think if particularly the human rights groups have been rather disappointed with Aung San Suu Kyi, particularly on the ranking issue as well. And she's largely been trying to co-op the military with her, which I think is actually quite smart politics because of the way she's been treated for over 20, 30 years by the military. She kind of realizes that she you have to work with the military and that probably means that in areas like defense, you probably have to accommodate them um, unfortunately, I've not seen any recent opinion polls and I'm not quite sure how reliable they will be. But the expectation is that she is favoured to win again, but with a reduced majority. 
because largely that she's seen as the country's most popular politician and her party has a national network across. But it will be really interesting to see in the NLD, um, there are, Myanmar's consisting a lot of ethnic groups and they've had a few armed conflicts between the military and these ethnic groups. So it'll be really interesting to see in those states in which the ethnic groups are very strong, how those political parties do against them. So I will be watching that as well. Well, that election is due to happen on Sunday, but on Friday, we just had the final results released from the New Zealand general election and the euthanasia um, and cannabis referendums. We'll talk about those two in a bit. But just to give you the final breakdown, Labour got 50.01% of the vote and 65 seats. Now, Sam, I want you to think back to your first podcast. I used, I, do you have a little smug smile on your face when I read out those figures? I do, yes. 51.01% and 65 seats out of 120-seat parliament. I do, yes. I, I'm not sure that I got the seat count exactly right. I can't remember exactly what I said, but I definitely said it would be over 50%. So I snuck... By the because, skin of your teeth, isn't it? By the skin it? of my teeth, I got that correct. So yes, I'm feeling quite smug about that. Were there any interesting changes or any takeaways from the final results versus the post-election diagnosis we did a few weeks ago? Well, interestingly, the National Party's day got even worse. So they had 35 seats on election night. They have finished with 33 and have dropped 1%. So they have dropped two seats. They lost, gained, Labour's gained one seat so to 64 to 65. And the Maori Party has gained enough seats to qualify for a second MP because obviously it's proportional representation once you gain the first MP. And they got 1.2% share of the vote which was enough to get them a second seat. So their female colleague, Debbie Wanaku-Paka, has now gone back into parliament. And this is something that's very interesting. They've kind of done what the FDP did in Germany, which was they spent a term, they were in government, was kicked out in one election and returned in the election after. And what I find interesting is that the Maori party coming back, which is obviously an indigenous right party, I think clearly had an impact into Jacinda Ardern's thinking on her cabinet reshuffle. I actually missed a lot of that with all the stuff that was going on in the US, but are there any key takeaways you would have? I saw that Grant Robertson has gone from being the finance minister to being deputy prime minister. Yes, he is the first openly gay New Zealand deputy prime minister. But interestingly, he's not the deputy leader of the Labour Party. That was Kelvin Davis. Now, I tipped him to become education minister. He's actually the children's minister in charge of Oranga Tamaki, which is this kind of, and there have been lots of problems in this portfolio. And you can imagine it's a portfolio in which emotions run high. But he's still deputy leader of the Labour Party, but he's not deputy prime minister. Apparently, he told Jacinda Ardern before the election, he didn't want to become deputy PM. But I suspect, and going back to the point back in the Maori party, that they did quite well, and particular took a seat of Labour, which is the only seat Labour had lost, is that the Maori Party representation in cabinet is much better now. They hold portfolios from foreign affairs. Nahaya Mahuta, who has been an MP since 1996, has become the first Maori and the first woman to be foreign affairs minister. They are also defence. They also hold a defence portfolio, the justice portfolio, and many other portfolios: the children's, prisons. So a whole wide range of portfolios now. And I, th and I wonder how much of this 
was electoral calculation that Jacinda Ardern made or had to give given the results of the general election. So I found it interesting. And I think a final point on the New Zealand election, because you know, you and I both love a good stat. So I'm just gonna read now some of how bad National did really, because the figures are just astounding to me. So Papakura, which is Judith Collins' seat, she returned as a constituency MP. But on the party vote, because in MMP you have two votes, one for your constituency and one for the party list, she actually lost, the National Party she led lost the party vote to Labour, which is astonishing really. Wow. And the National Party itself only won four party vote in four electorates. And they're all in the North Island. The whole of the South Island, every single one of them was red. And the South Island, particularly the rural areas, political compass rated it as more conservative as right at the very far end. So that's very interesting to see how bad the National Party did in South Island. And I would like to also point out Jerry Brownlee, who's the deputy leader of the National Party, lost his own seat by nearly 10 percentage points, which is a huge margin. But because of the fact he was number two on the party list, he is back. One more thing before we move on to the US, I forgot to mention the two referendum results in, the, in New Zealand, where the cannabis one saw the yes vote narrowly, narrowly fail, 49% to 51%. And the euthanasia one passed emphatically 65% to 35%. So um, clearly the end, um, New Zealand will have legalized euthanasia. Um, but um, cannabis will have to probably take one more push. And Jacinda Ardern has said there probably isn't going to be much in this space over the next term. So mm. that will have to wait. But those elections were just being completed. Right now, we're theorizing when the US elections are going to end, is it? We are indeed. It is now, as I said, we're now looking at it's quarter to three um, UK time at the moment. And I'm just going to, for context, read out the margins that are the current margins in states that have yet to be called, just so people can understand where our discussion is coming from. Um, so currently, in Georgia, Biden is leading by 7,250 votes. Arizona, the margin is just short of 30,000. Pennsylvania, also just short of 30,000. And Nevada is just short of 23,000. So Biden in the lead in all four of those. And Trump is currently holding his lead he had in North Carolina from election night. Now, we're not expecting any North Carolina ballots until next week. Um, but it could be that throughout this podcast, the Pennsylvania lead, at the very least, increases. Um, but yes, we're still waiting for networks to call the results. It's looking like, I'm sure, I think we've talked about this, but it's looking like Biden will become the president-elect. It's just a matter of when it will be called, because the Pennsylvania result, as I'm sure we'll come on to discuss later in the podcast, is only going to increase. I just wanted to ask, before we talk about our overall thoughts, how many percent of the vote is left to count in each of the states? Are you aware of? Yeah, so it looks like there is about 1% of the vote left to count in Georgia, which, as far as I'm aware, is mainly overseas military ballots. There's a few counties which have a few outstanding absentee ballots, but very, very few. Um, Arizona, I think there's about 3% left to count, which is almost entirely based in Maricopa County, which at the moment are doing two updates a day. 
Pennsylvania has about 4% left and it's mostly concentrated in the Pittsburgh area, in, in Allegheny County and in the Philadelphia area. And the there's, suburbs as well. In the suburbs of Philadelphia, yes. And then the Nevada vote, there's about 7% left, which is mostly in Clark County, which is the county that has Las Vegas within it. So tends to lean Democratic, especially in mail-in ballots. But again, these ballots are coming in quite slowly. So there's no real horizon at which these will be counts will be completed. Um, but I think we could be expecting some state calls, if not later today, by the close of the weekend, I would I would imagine. I have to admit that I've been very bad on when states are going to be called. It seems to be pushing back each day when I think the states will be called. But I, I do agree with you that the trend is definitely trending in one direction, though. Although I would point out that in Arizona, Maricona County, despite the fact, as we stated before in this podcast, is where Phoenix, the largest city, is, the votes that have been coming have actually been shrinking Biden's margin. Correct. But the key yeah. thing there is that Trump needs to hit about 60% of these vo- these votes to, to draw level with Biden. And he's consistently been performing about 5 to 10 percentage points less than that. The Biden campaign if- seems pretty certain that they will hang on in, in Arizona even if it's by a slim margin, at least their internal numbers are telling them that. But yes, I would argue that that's probably the most likely of these states to change at the moment, at least. Georgia's going into a recount, but it seems to be trending to being just outside of the region in which a recount could affect the result. But that will remain to be seen for the next fortnight. I find it very interesting in the sense that on election night, if you remember, Arizona was one of the first... Fox News came out and called Arizona way before anyone else did. And in fact, I think the AP, Associated Press, has called it, I think, a, a day or so after. But sites like the New York Times and CNN are still not called um, Arizona before. And I think it's useful in this context to point out that Joe Biden has 253 electoral votes. And... Donald Trump is 214. So 253 with 270 needed to win. Pennsylvania will put him over the top. Arizona plus Nevada will put him over the top. Um, Georgia will put him 269, which is a dead even. Um, But there are multiple paths for Biden to to become president-elect, whereas Trump virtually has to sweep the entire board of the remaining states left. But back to Arizona, if you remember back to election night, Fox News came out really early with 70% vote counted and Biden was leading about five points and called it. Whereas some sites still haven't called it. So I actually think that's very interesting. They're called relative to other news networks. Yeah, over the past couple of days, I've been trying to find out information on how networks make their decision on calling races. Because as you and I both know, and as our listeners probably know, They have a tendency in the US, which is something we just don't fully appreciate in the UK because this never happens, where they will call races as soon as polls close. They have not declared any results in some states and they will call it, um, which just does not happen in the UK in, in constituencies. So I've been trying to research on what basis they make these calls. And a couple of interesting takeaways, especially for the states that are remaining, 
So one thing is, if the margin currently resides or is projected to reside in a mandatory recount threshold, they will not call it, which Pennsylvania is within now, but is widely expected to not be within even by the end of today. So I'd be interested to see if they change their decision on calling Pennsylvania today based on that information. And the other one is that they have no realistic or likely scenario in which the person currently in second will be in first. And that's the interesting one for me because most the general consensus, especially on one of these states, Nevada, is that there is no reasonable scenario in which Trump can overtake Biden. So I just don't really understand why the network hasn't called that. I don't know if you have any opinions or different knowledge on why that hasn't been called. Well, I read somewhere that one of the, I think it's ABC News, said that the only call states where they're 99.5% certain that they've got it correct. Now, I wonder in this age in which data has been so readily available and where it shows a clear pattern, whether they're, they're kind of like 95, 96, so not quite at 99.5, but very much trending in that direction. The coverage definitely very much suggested to me. And all the data analysts who have brought you, like Steve Kornacki, John King, have all said that, you know, all these ballots are trending Democrat. And we've seen throughout the week, and you and I have watched tantalizing as this big Trump lead on Tuesday night slowly got whittled away and whittled away and whittled away. Then on the course of Thursday, both Georgia and Pennsylvania within about three hours flipped in the middle of the night. And I actually want to just mention at this point that I did think it was kind of poetic that in Georgia, at least, Clayton County was the state that put Biden into the lead. Now, Clayton County is just south of Atlanta. And it was and part of it is, was contained in the congressional district which civil rights hero John Lewis represented. And he obviously had a bit of a, Trump and him had a bit of a spat. And it's kind of... And he sadly passed away this year. So it's kind of nice in a very poetic justice way that his it was votes from his county that put him over the top. Same could be said in Arizona because, you know, the McCain family still held in very high esteem there. And Sydney McCain did, you know, she spoke at a DNC. She did an ad for Biden as well. And that was the first state that was flipped from red to blue. And which apparently caused a lot of angst and anger in the Trump campaign because at that stage, and if you remember, Donald Trump once again, like 2016, performed much, much better on election night than on opinion polls did, didn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. And even though I think it's widely expected that Joe Biden will end either just short of 300 electoral votes or on three or six if he, if he carries all the states he's leading in at the moment, it's much closer than people expected, and certainly it's much closer than we expected. I think before we go any further, should we acknowledge our predictions and just how incorrect at least mine were? I mean, you were closer, but still not correct. Well, um, so just to remind us, we put this on Twitter last week before the presidential results came out, and we had we largely agreed on them, but... I think like you, I was surprised by some of the margins, particularly in the Midwest, which I want to touch upon in a bit. But the main differences was that I stated, and we talked about Florida a lot, um, was that I thought that Florida go Republican, and which you disagreed with, and Florida did indeed go Republican. 
um, you very confidently predicted that Georgia, though you say it'd be tight, would go Democrat, which you are at, at this rate, you're exactly spot on. We both got North Carolina wrong, which we're going to talk a little bit later. And I also said I thought the main second district would go Republican, and it did. So you win one in New Zealand, I win in the US. So <laughs> we're right now in 1-1, one, one, um, which I will take, really. But I would like to go back to the Midwest. I think if we go to the Midwest, those three blue wall states, which so epitomized 2016, so yeah, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. I think we both thought that, you know, suddenly the polls were showing that Michigan was seven to eight points, Pennsylvania around six. Wisconsin was having wild swings of up to 11 in the ABC poll. But at the moment, Wisconsin is about 20 to 30,000 votes, which is less than 1%. Michigan is hovering at around two and a half. And Pennsylvania looks set to be about 1% at the moment. So clearly the opinion polls have all under, have all got it way wrong in terms of the margin. Do you have any reason why at this stage, at this very preliminary stage? I mean, I think it's important, although I think we will end up in a position where the opinion polls will be quite significantly wrong, especially in the cases of Michigan and Wisconsin, which towards the end of the race, we were expecting to be close to double figure margins for Biden over Trump. And it's not going to get to that. But I think it is important to let the votes come in first before we dissect this in detail, because as we've seen over the last 72 hours, things can change quite dramatically. Oh, definitely. But also, the polls don't seem to have been wrong across the board. So I don't think this is a mass polling error. Because you look at states like Minnesota, plus seven, that's about where people would expect it to be. It was going to be um, tighter than other so-called Clinton states that Trump had in his sights, but was going to be pretty secure in the end. I'd say seven points is about right. There's other states like Arizona seems to be like it's going to be in the sort of right ballpark where with a narrow lead for Joe Biden, especially Georgia as well. Um, but I'm not exactly sure what happened with the polling in Michigan and Wisconsin because, and I know we're not going to talk in detail about the Senate today probably, but look what happened to Gary Peters. For a while, John James was leading in that race. Um, and Gary Peters is not going to win by large margins. And we had talked about that last week quite a bit in saying that we thought Gary Peters would be pretty secure and it's within one percentage point. I would say this moment, though, and like you, and I agree, there's still lots of counting to be done, is that a lot of the Senate candidates, apart from Mark Kelly, Steve Bullock and the law, the ones we thought were going to significantly outrun Joe Biden actually did not significantly outrun Joe, um, the top of the ticket. I remember there was a point in Michigan where Joe Biden was leading in the presidential race, but not in the Peters behind the Senate. And I think this continued for quite a bit more time after that as well. I think I would say, regards to this polls, like you, um, we, we, we decided before we started talking to state the time because there could always be updates. So these figures we could give a little could be out of date. But it seems to me that in a lot of these polls, I mean, Biden's on 49.6% in Pennsylvania. He is on 50.5% in Michigan. Wisconsin is 49.4%. He's kind of hitting his share of the vote in these states. But Trump has massively overperformed what people thought his share of the vote was. 
and therefore that has significantly reduced the margin. Mm-hmm. So I think it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see in those pool of undecided voters or those voters who said they voted third party, whether they actually voted Trump themselves yeah. rather than actually undecided or did not vote. And okay, he might, he might, his campaign might have gained a bit of momentum after the third debate. But I wonder whether that, those pool of undecideds were just people who were more naturally likely to be Trump supporters because they might have drifted off from the president because of his handling of coronavirus in the summer. But because of this hyper-polarized environment, they were very likely to vote Republican anyway. Yeah. So we ended up in this kind of situation. I think it's worth pointing out at this stage that right now Joe Biden has, at this stage, won 74 million votes, or 50.5% shared vote, which is the highest vote share of highest number of votes ever won. And the second highest number of votes ever won is Donald Trump because he won he's now on 70 million. So clearly one thing, one very early takeaway, and I think we are very safe in making this takeaway, is that there's been astronomical turnout in the US. Yeah, it? I was just I was just about to say one thing that I think can be said with high confidence is that Donald Trump's turnout and get out the vote campaign on election day was incredibly successful. And that might be one of the reasons why the polls were wrong, because they were predicting lower turnout on election day, particularly from the GOP side, than actually occurred. I know, and I think we can safely say as well, that the Biden campaign's get-out-the-vote operation in terms of getting people to sign up for mail votes was clearly very successful, because it's had the capability to whittle down a 700,000-vote lead in Pennsylvania down to an expected Biden lead that's going to be near 100,000. So the Democrats had about nearly an 800,000 advantage in mail votes in the state of Pennsylvania alone. But Trump was able to mobilize his turnout on election day in a very successful way, particularly in Florida. And I think that's one of the reasons why we saw Florida declared so early on and it slipped away so quickly, and it's had such a large margin compared to what we expected. Well, we'll definitely talk about Florida next week when we cover the South, um, because obviously you and I were talking during election night, and I, the moment I saw the figures from Miami Day, I kind of told you it was game over already, um, but we'll talk about Florida in a minute. The one thing I, I think both of us had experienced during the week is that on Tuesday and Wednesday, when Trump was leading by double digits, a lot of people remember 2016 and what happened. Mm-hmm. And but both of us were quite confident in the end that Biden would pull, would rein him in and pull ahead. Can you explain why Trump managed to get into such a huge vote margin at first? Well, maybe after twenty percent counted, because Biden was actually leading up to twenty percent counted, and then from twenty percent to eight to about maybe sixty percent, he just kept building, building up this lead. And suddenly at 60%, it's just completely changed direction. Um, can you explain why it's been such this polarization and where you could get Trump leading by double digits at with half the vote counted to now in Pennsylvania being 1%, only 1% behind? Yeah, so the big difference in this election in all the states is that the number of mail-in ballots requested was astronomically higher than in previous elections because of the ongoing pandemic. And those mail-in ballots were requested 
disproportionately by Democrats, largely because the Trump campaign were telling their supporters not to use mail-in ballots because they were fraudulent, they wouldn't be counted, there would be irregularities, we would challenge them in the courts, whereas the Democrats were encouraging people to get mail-in ballots so that they could be safer on election day. So that's why the difference in mail-in ballots is so high. Now, the reason, particularly in the Midwest and more extremely so in Pennsylvania, the gap has been able to be closed in such a dramatic fashion so late is because these mail-in ballots were not counted as they were accepted and they were not counted before election day, unlike in states like Florida and Arizona, where they were able to declare large amounts of particularly mail-in ballot results almost immediately. And it's because there were court challenges in place to ensure that mail-in ballots couldn't be opened in advance of election day and they should be segregated off. Absentee provisional ballots should be segregated off from election day ballots. I think this was in the anticipation that the Trump campaign would try to challenge the validity of these mail-in ballots and get them not to be counted at all. Now, they have been counted and they're slowly being declared over these last few days. But because of the combination of those two things, we're seeing the largely disproportionately Democratic mail-in ballots being counted after all of the election day ballots have been counted. So really, the bulk of the Biden support is now coming in because the bulk of the Biden support was cast by mail in advance of election day. Exactly. And I totally agree with you with that. And that's why I think both of us felt very confident on Wednesday when yeah. we looked at where, how much vote was left um, that eventually will pull him in. And, and I, think, I, think, I think it's important for us as people who follow elections to emphasise this point that a lot of the misinformation being spread about there, there being some sort of Democrats finding thousands of votes just hidden behind tables or hidden under voting machines is <laughs> just a lot of malarkey. It's a lot of baloney because this was always going to happen before the pandemic happened, especially before the last few weeks when it was starting to look like Democrats might take quite a lot of states. If it was going to come down to the Midwest, this was always going to take days, wasn't it? Well, what I find interesting for two things, first of all, use the word malarkey, and that's, I suspect, largely in honour of the what we both suspect as the 46th president of the United States small note. But a more important note, I think, is the fact that in all these states, remember, you know, we were talking about this even a week to go for election day. We were also concerned of naked ballots in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Now, naked ballots, this idea in which in Pennsylvania, you had to put, so when you get your ballot, you have to put it in an envelope, but that envelope was to be put in another envelope in order for it to be counted. And there was this concern, particularly among Democrats, that because they were relying so heavily on mail-in votes, because naked ballots were not going to be counted, that was going to pose a problem. Clearly, it's not posed a problem. And I had a look at the rejected votes. It's very, very low. So I do think one of the plus points of the game, because it was so well publicized, you had Barack Obama doing videos, the governor did videos and stuff like that. Because it was so well publicized, people actually did it according to how he's supposed to do it. So... Yeah. That that's that's one thing as well. I will say two things about Pennsylvania as well. First of all, is that I looked at counties which um, Hillary Clinton either did very badly in compared to usual Democrats, or that Biden flipped from four years ago. 
So Erie County, which is on the Northwest state and on the lakes has flipped from red to blue. But more interestingly, and this is really, I think the hometown effect is Lakanawa County, which is home to Scranton, which is obviously where Joe Biden is from. The Democrats won by three points there, but crucially now they're on eight points. And so these small shifts in these Obama Trump areas, as four years, Obama Trump now Biden areas, there was some movement back, but I don't think it was to the same extent that it was in 2012 because Scranton voted Democrat by over 20 points. And even the hometown boy couldn't even crack double digit lead. So that's something I think worth mentioning of the enduring base of President Trump for, from four years ago. Yeah. But and then again. And these counties also emphasize the discrepancy between the Democratic and Republican votes in the mail in ballots, because even in some of the staunchest Trump counties, in Pennsylvania, the mail-in ballot declarations are going in favor of Joe Biden. So that just, that's another illustration, I think, of why this lead has collapsed so quickly and so starkly. It's because even in the heaviest Trump counties, the majority of mail-in ballots are for Joe Biden. And I think one thing I was going to say is that there has been, although there's been a small shift, but not to the same extent, the same migration from Democrat to Republican as 2016, Biden has found extra votes. And he's found it in the in the in in the suburbs where the Democrats did very well in two years ago. So just to give you some stat that I just found in the Philadelphia suburbs. So Philadelphia is a city right in the southeast of Pennsylvania and the suburbs behind it. There's been a 50 percent increase in the margin compared to Hillary Clinton. That's astonishing to me. So in other words, this is the lead as well. And in a high turnout election. That is astonishing. Trump has actually won more votes in the city of Philadelphia. And that's largely, I suspect, because he's doing better among non-white voters. But the suburbs have clearly revolted against President Trump, haven't they? Yeah, and I think what's really interesting and a larger point to be made about the Midwest is that Biden's USP, if you like, in the primaries was that I might not be the most progressive candidate on this stage, I might not absolutely run the board on the Electoral College map, but I can definitely do you one thing and I can win back the blue wall. And he's done it. And he's done Barely, it because though. He's done Barely. it because he's run up the numbers in the suburbs. Barely, but he's done it. And perhaps another candidate who was maybe not paying as much attention to the rural or the suburb communities in the Midwest might not have done that. But... Or if the more liberal Democrats who like to talk about defunding the police. Because I think one of the things we're going to talk about next in a couple of podcasts when we talk about the House is how that message actually, I think, hurt a lot of the House Democrats actually running these suburban areas. And I mean, another important point to make about the Midwest and Pennsylvania especially is that it's not just about the incredibly high numbers that Biden has put in in the suburb counties. But he's also, quite crucially in terms of this overall result, managed to narrow the gap in stronger Republican counties. And he's been able to squeeze votes out there. And I think that's something else that he marketed himself as being able to do because he was he was saying, I'm the kid from Scranton. I can get you some genuine swing voters who are not in the suburbs, who are not in naturally democratic leaning states who will vote for me and might not vote for anybody else. And I think he has proven 
that he was correct in doing that. I mean, we'll never know if anybody else was able to have done that, but he's definitely been able to do that. And crucially, in such a tighter election than we expected, these sort of differences and the ability to win these groups of voters, even in small numbers, make all the difference. I get your message on this idea of the boy from Scranton. And, you know, particularly that might work in Pennsylvania as well, because he's obviously from there. But I, I still think that it also shows the enduring power of Donald Trump. Because, for sure, for sure. you know, he only saw a five-point increase in his hometown. And this, if we move away from Pennsylvania, talk about Michigan for a little bit, McCobb County is home to the original Reagan Democrats. In other words, Democrats who uh, voted for Ronald Reagan the first time in the 80s. And Donald Trump did particularly well, winning by 12 points. In Michigan, uh, right now, in McCobb County, which is just outside Detroit, the margin is currently around eight. So it's only about a four to five point shift, really, in these working class communities mm -hmm. that Biden marketed himself in. And I think that could pose a problem for the, depending on the future direction of the Republican Party, that could pose a difficult problem for the, an interesting problem and a difficult problem for the Democrats. Don't you think so? And yeah. this election, sorry, well, it's more about in terms of where it certainly, why Biden is leading in terms of all three states boils down to the suburbs. Yeah, and I think this brings us nicely onto a question that I think has to be asked of the Midwest. Has this been a repudiation of an assumption that the Midwest was slipping away from the Democrats? Has this proven that these are naturally democratic-leaning states that Democrats can pick up and it's really a Trump effect that has made these competitive? Or do you think that this is a problem that Democratic candidates will have for several cycles to come? Well, the easy answer is that time will tell on that one, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, I but... think the, the comparison to the UK, I think, is interesting because I think a similar sort of thing occurred in the so-called red wall in the UK, which is that time will tell whether this was a Brexit effect, whether and similar, whether it's a Trump effect in the blue wall in the US. But also there are demographic factors at play. I, I think I would say this. I think in the Midwest, I think we now have to, there are two types of Midwest states. Because I think this election has proven to me for sure that Ohio and Iowa are definitely red states to me. Yeah. Um, and Ohio is going to lose its bellwether street. It's voted for the for the presidential candidate since the nineteen eighty. And Donald Trump won Iowa. Oh, sorry, Ohio convincingly. Um, we expect because of the fact there's still outstanding votes in the blue areas of Ohio to tighten the margin. But Donald Trump's currently leading there by eight points. It's yeah. not small at all. And in an environment in which the Democrats are doing better than the national vote that clearly Ohio voting so far to the right, I think we can firmly say that of those of those two, Iowa and Ohio in the Midwest, they are clearly no longer swing states. I think that's very similar to the red wall has clearly fallen, like in the UK. Yeah, the blue and, wall and in these we, states have fallen. As we discussed a couple of weeks ago, it took, in the national polls, a double-digit lead for Joe Biden to even bring states like Ohio and Iowa into the conversation. That's and, true. And it's proven that without that 10-point lead, he's not even remotely competitive because 
whilst the Biden national lead now is just short of 3%, and it will increase because states like California haven't fully declared yet. There's about 23% of the vote left to declare in California, and that will be very, very democratic. But with such with a low single-digit lead in the national vote, states like this are just not on the map. And if they're not on the map with a low single-digit lead, they're not swing states. They're not competitive. I would like to point out two things about Ohio, which I think kind of shows you that although it is Republican, it is not immune to the overall shifts within the Midwest. Because in Dayton, Dayton, Ohio is in Montgomery County, which actually has flipped back to Biden. And that is a quite a big city, actually. Mm-hmm. And Delaware County, which is just outside Columbus in the middle of the state, went very far towards the Democrats' column. If you go to the New York Times, you can see this huge long arrow in, in, um, in, in Ohio because they mm-hmm. showed a shift. And that is because of Delaware County. But then again, though, even in 2020, when Biden has done better in terms of shared vote, he has lost counties that, he, that Hillary Clinton didn't lose four, four years ago. Mahogany County in the eastern state along the Pennsylvania border. That was actually lost. And that's where Youngstown is. That also shows you that the shifts underneath Ohio are still there. But Ohio clearly, as, we, as I think, and we both agree, it's lost. And I remember on election night, people were very worried when the counties along Pennsylvania were moving even more into the red. It was like, oh no, was this an indication of what was happening across the border? But clearly that wasn't the case, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think Ohio in, on election night was testament to how bizarre this election night was in terms of having such weird counts going on with mail-in votes and on election day votes. Because for a while, Joe Biden was holding quite a substantial lead in Ohio that was taking a lot of people by surprise. Now, you and I had a discussion in the middle of the night on how this was not going to hold because there were still plenty of votes to come in. But I think it's testament to the fact that this effect that's now going on in Pennsylvania happened in the other direction throughout election night because Mm. of the states where they were able to count absentee ballots immediately um, and declare them immediately. It was the opposite that was going on and that it was Trump was advancing. I think as well in relation to Iowa as well, we stated this in an earlier podcast, but if you remember, we talked about the number of counties in which um, Hillary Clinton won compared to Barack Obama before. And Hillary Clinton lost 32 counties in between 2012 and 2016. Well, I can tell you right now that obviously with the caveat that not all results are going to be counted. And sadly, that's going to be our mantra for probably this podcast (laughs) and next week's podcast episode is that Joe Biden has only won six counties. He did not flip a single county in Iowa. And Iowa is a rural state that tells you everything about this election. Yeah. In terms of their potential struggles in both Iowa and Ohio. Yeah, if you look at the New York Times, my favourite map on the New York Times, which is the one you talked about a bit earlier with the arrows, Iowa is just covered in red arrows, which for an election that has swung to the Democrats on the headline figures is startling, really. Well, I've got some good news on this front as a Democrat. There are now two places that have blue arrows in Iowa, and that is Dallas County and Polk County. But those are where Des Moines is and the suburbs. So again, similar narrative, but Iowa is just so much more rural. So around it, surrounding it, it's just red, really. And in particular, the east of the state, which is much more industrial working class, is actually a lot of red. And 
again, showing you how those two states have moved away from Democrats. But Wisconsin, P- Michigan, and Pennsylvania, I think Biden from the very start knew where to go to. Mm-hmm. I think he wasn't very ambitious in terms of expanding the map. He certainly didn't pour any resources into Texas, despite the pleading of Beto O'Rourke and uh, Julian Castro. And I think now um, we see the reason why. Now we see the reason why, um, which we'll talk about next week, in particular Florida as well. He did spend some time in Georgia, so maybe that was the only deviation, because I remember he did two campaign stops on the Friday before. Yeah. But he majority of his time was focused on those three states, and he consistently talked about the blue wall and his mission to rebuild it. Yeah, I think um, what the Democrats did and what Joe Biden's campaign did quite effectively, and I think history will prove that they were right on this, is that they sat down with the map and realised that our best route to 270, which is all that is important in this election, is to take back Wisconsin, Michigan and Pennsylvania. Even if we win nothing else, if we win those three states, which have been democratic for quite some time until Hillary Clinton lost them in 2016, we will have over 270 electoral votes. And I think when all is said and done, when we look back on this election, even if Joe Biden goes on to pick up Arizona and Georgia, which I think at this stage he probably will, they were they were correct in putting a lot of time and energy into the three Midwestern states because if one or two of them hadn't have gone this way and they did go this they did go Biden's way quite narrowly, if one or two of them hadn't, this map would look very different, and and Donald Trump might be making preparations to have four more years in the White House. I certainly do think that his team certainly thought on election night that he would get four more years. Mm-hmm. Because particularly, one of the things that we I remember about election night is that because of the way in which, as we, as you said earlier, Pennsylvania now couldn't count its mail-in votes, is that the narrative from Ohio, and particularly Florida, drove the election night coverage. And that and those who say it was certainly the Republicans doing a lot better than the polls did. Yeah. Um, although I that think- being said, one, one thing on the polls... I would like to give full credit to Ann Selzer, who is the queen of Iowa. She put out a rather a poll of two, three days before election day, which put Iowa at a seven-point lead, which was very much away from what a lot of pollsters thought. But it turns out she's right and on the money. And it was pretty so. much bang on, yeah. Exactly. So before we spend um, the next few weeks bashing polling and how what where they got wrong and where we think they got wrong, Let's acknowledge where they did get something right. And I think she, her polling company definitely did something right with, uh, with the Iowa presidential race. Absolutely. Um, I think there's another state to talk about in the Midwest that Democrats can be pretty pleased about, which is Minnesota. Because we had talked about it last week as probably being the most likely Clinton state to flip to Trump. And in the end... The shift from 2016 in Minnesota was to take it even more democratic. So do you think the Democrats can be pretty happy with what they've been able to achieve in Minnesota? I think both Minnesota, and I think, to be honest, the bigger one, they'll be happy with New Hampshire, actually, because oh, that yeah. was razor thin, 2,000 votes, and it was declared so early on election night. I think in terms of where we talked about this fact that not all these Obama-Trump white working class votes moved back, I do think where they have moved back significantly, um, with the exception of the main second congressional district, has been um, New England. 
I th- and that is to me the best shift, the best evidence of that is New Hampshire, where right now it's a seven point lead when it was virtually in dead heat four years ago. Yeah, and, and Maine the lead has doubled. Which the main we'll, leaders we'll doubled as well. Discussed next week because Susan Collins managed to withstand a democratic surge in Maine somehow. Definitely, and I will be looking out for the results in upstate New York because upstate New York, if you take away New York City, actually, if you take away New York City from New York State, it would have gone Republican mm-hmm. in four years ago. I'm, and this this is despite Hillary Clinton being a former senator for New York. Um, so I'm really interested to see how upstate New York does. Um, when the full results come in. But back to Minnesota, I think the Democrats can breathe a sigh of relief. Um, but then again, if you look at the Blue, the Times arrow shift, again, it's the suburbs and the cities that proved it. And I think what this shows is that, once again, the enduring power and the, the saving grace for the Democrats in Minnesota is that compared to, let's say, Iowa, definitely, is that the city of St. Paul and Minneapolis just occupy a greater proportion of the state population as a whole. There's a big urban center, which is a big bank for democratic votes, relative to Iowa, where Des Moines is certainly not large enough. And I think that is something which has ensured that Minnesota has stayed blue and therefore has seen a seven-point shift. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see in four years' time when we're back to this all over again, <laughs> whether the Midwest is the main battleground once again or whether the focus will be placed on trying to advance in the south the places in the south which we'll come to discuss next week but i think it's been i think to be honest it's quite a fascinating map because if we end up in a situation where georgia goes blue ahead of florida that's that's very interesting and because that's what we were alluding to essentially with your prediction in particular that yeah. georgia would go blue before florida which yeah. for us having followed US politics for years, it's a notion which I find very difficult to understand, don't you? Yeah, or try well, I to thought, wrap my head around. Although I called Georgia for Joe Biden last week when we made the predictions, I was having flashbacks to 2018, where it was looking so promising for the Democrats, and then they fell just short. And I just wondered if that was going to happen again. And it looks like that might not have happened this time, which is quite amazing, really. At this stage, we're kind of in a transition period because we're kind of where at the state in which suddenly in the in in the Midwest is trendy Republican, and we're going to talk about what the Democrats need because I think in the South now they're going to need another factor to consider next week as well. But suddenly Arizona looks like it fit, you know, Colorado is blue now, so there has been growth in that Sun Belt region, and whether and now with Georgia potentially switching blue, is that clearly the South could be where the Democrats come back and it's kind of a realignment back to what it used to be because the democrats dominated the south you know 50 years ago until the big switch around so yeah. i wonder now whether we're seeing again another switch around again um but we're kind of in that weird transition phase but you know as they say time will tell but the one thing overall the midwest is that it will continue to drive a lot of money a lot of attention and the governor's races will still be crucial as well um, in these air, in these regions as well as barometers for where the yeah. the, the the state lies because it it, uh, it is noteworthy that both Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, which look likely to flip from red to blue, all elected Democrat governors, 
Wisconsin and Michigan flipped their governor house um, in 2018. Tom Wolf won handsomely his re-election. Whereas Ohio was suddenly a dis- and Iowa, the Democrats did have hope for the governor houses there, but but disappointingly missed out, particularly in Ohio, I reckon. It'll be it'll be definitely an interesting region to keep an eye on in elections in the future and um, to see what occurs. Well, we've barely scratched the surface and we've been talking about the Midwest. We're obviously going to be talking about the South, where the reason why we decided to talk about the South next week is that hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll know maybe the recount has been completed. We certainly wouldn't know the final votes in Georgia and Arizona will hopefully be declared by next week's podcast, but we've been keeping pushing back. But time's running out. I wanted to, at this stage, give you, ask you a question it's been five days. We've had emotional roller coasters throughout, as we did. I certainly felt more prepared on election night to accept a Donald Trump second term much more than when I four years ago. Um, what if what has been your biggest surprise and biggest disappointment of from election period so far? So the biggest surprise for me probably comes in in Florida, which is. One, the margin, and two, the fact that it went Trump anyway, because I'd I'd call it for Biden, and it just seemed like a state that was probably just going to come in. And to a certain extent, that's also the disappointment, because had Biden carried Florida, this election would probably have been called already, because Florida would counted much quicker than everywhere else. But also, another big surprise, which we'll definitely touch on next week when we talk about Congress, is just is what has happened in the Senate elections because it has been quite a big disappointment, I think, for the Democratic Party in general. And I, I guess I'll leave it on one thing, which is my big surprise is how indestructible Susan Collins is. <laughs> well, we'll definitely talk about the Senate next week, but my biggest surprise to me was Georgia. Mm-hmm. I think from, from I've you know I, I, I studied politics five years ago. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that Georgia would turn blue before Florida. It's exactly what happened in 1992, which is the last time in which a first-term president failed to win re-election, George H.W. Bush. But it seemed to me that this is going to be the case. So the biggest surprise to me was Georgia. And it particularly seemed that slow tick up. And that's why I said from a happiness point of view, as I mentioned earlier, the fact it was John Lewis. And this could potentially be Jimmy Carter, who is, of course, from Georgia. Mm-hmm. This could be his last presidential election he sees. I thought it was very poetic that he could finally see Georgia turn democratic again. Um, as a final th- goodbye, thank you, President, really, from the entire Georgia. My biggest disappointment, actually, to be honest, is also what happened down ballot, but not the Senate side. It's the number of House incumbents, which I thought was safe, lost the seats. Joe Cunningham in South Carolina. Um, Max Rose certainly in New York, and we're going to be talking about what happened in the House, and certainly their recreation, their recriminations happening. Nancy Pelosi has indicated she will run for another term as Speaker, but uh, I'm afraid that that is the last term of the Speaker. And Abigail Spamiger has already expressed a lot of anger about the way in which certain campaigns were run and the way in which defund the police was allowed such a breath of experience. Um, but we could definitely talk about the house where it definitely went wrong. We certainly got it very wrong in the house as well. We both predict the games for Democrats. I'll be very surprised. That would have probably net loss, really. So, so there'll be a quick, lot to talk about. A quick question before we wrap up, and I know we'll talk about this next week. I want a one-word answer. 
will Nancy Pelosi be re-elected speaker? Well, we're still doing predictions. Having got that one wrong, I think she will. I think she has to more definitively say that this is her last term. And if I were her, I would say yes, because all presidents, the last few anyway, Obama, Bush was unique, um, I admit, but Clinton, George H.W. Bush, all lost seats in the House. And in fact, both um, Clinton, Obama, the last two Democratic presidents, saw the House flip from Republic, uh, Democrat to Republican in the first midterm that it faced. So if I was Nancy Pelosi, I would try and end as a high, and a high is a Speaker of the House. She has an immense legacy, but I don't think she, and I, if I were her, I would not want to see it tarnished as losing the House, as being the Speaker that I've lost the House twice. Well, that was a long one-word answer, but I'll take it because I did throw you a predictions curveball. <laughs> so that is it for our latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next week when we'll be discussing the continuing fallout from the US election and, as always, bringing you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe. You can follow us on Twitter at, at ballot underscore talk and please leave us a rating or review or tell your friends about us if, you've, if you're enjoying our podcast. So until then, I'll see you soon, Chern. I'll talk to you next week.